would be with each and every one of us this morning. That as we step into the light of Christ, that we wouldn't feel personal attacks, but that we would feel spiritual convictions. Your word says that everything that is done in the darkness will be revealed in the light. Father, we don't want to operate in the darkness. We want to live in the light. And to live in the light can be painful because all of our blind spots and all of our misgivings are put on display for everyone. And sometimes we don't help ourselves as we live in the light. But God, I pray that as we come before you, and as your spirit moves in our midst, that we would read the text and submit to what it is that the text is teaching us so that we might image you properly as we live in the light. We want to be the aroma of life. We want to be the salt of the earth. And I pray, Lord, that ultimately as you change us and continue to change us, that would be the goal that we strive toward. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we were closing our study last week, we mentioned that in the book of Ruth, specifically in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that we had discovered an expository opening act which provided us, modern students of the text, with the required backdrop for the story. You know, we're removed from the story and its point of origin, so we need the required backdrop so that we can understand what's actually going on. We also observed in our reading of verse 2 through 5 in chapter 1 of Ruth that as human beings, our choices, whatever they will be, because we make choices, they will have consequences. And in this body, we affirm both positive forms and negative forms of consequences. Like Callan was just saying, vulnerableness begets vulnerability. The consequence of someone being vulnerable is that those around them may step into a deeper level of courage and boldness and be, you know, open and honest and transparent themselves. So let's take a moment to reflect on some of last week's observations. Having experienced loss, first famine and then the loss of her husband and then the loss of her two sons, Naomi's clan hovered on the brink of extinction. Events such as this would force her to seek out a new path to survival. Starting over. These unexplained tragedies, all of which came in rapid-fire succession, left us pondering the reality that, like Naomi, we don't always have the answers that we want when things go wrong. Do we remember how heartbroken we were last week for Naomi and Ruth and Orpah? Not a single person in the room would have been willing to exchange places with them in the midst of their current circumstances. Not a single person would have said, I'll take her place. It leaves us wondering, what does the narrative have in store for us today? Well, let's find out. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law were with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they would be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, no, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. 
for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. The narrative is very intense, don't you think? When we look at verse 6 and 7, we should be asking ourselves, what is it that stands out in these two verses? So let's put the text up there. and What, what jumps out off the page to you guys? I'll give you a hint. Look for things in repetition. There they are. So we're looking at the text and we're making observations. Repetition is key because repetition shows the focus of the storyteller. So this morning, my goal is to zero in on what the narrator is highlighting. So let's talk about geography. The land of Moab is explicitly mentioned twice in verse 6 and implicitly mentioned once alongside of the land of Judah in verse 7. This is a clue. It's a signal. The audience needs to know the landscape. So at this point, it would probably be strategic to look at a map. You know, we talk about ourselves as modern students of the text, and because we're divided by time and language and geography and culture, we need to start with what's called the 10,000-foot view, and then we need to slowly make our way in. Why do we need to do that? Well, because a whole lot has changed from between the time when the judges ruled. This unfolded from 1220 to 1030 B.C., in the modern age. So map number one shows us where they would be in today's world. Everybody getting their bearings? We live there. They lived here. What does this shape look like to anybody? Anybody want to call out what that shape looks like? A rainbow, a moon, a crescent moon. Okay, so map number two shows us where they were in their world. This, in antiquity, was known as the Fertile Crescent. Moving in a little closer, map 3 gives us a reference point between both the land of Judah and Bethlehem and the country of Moab. Our reference point is the Dead Sea, the body of water located in the middle. It's also referred to as the Salt Sea. And finally, map 4 shows us potential routes of travel between the two countries. We don't know which route they traveled. We just can't be dogmatic on that. But, as I told you guys in previous studies, I'm a fan of option two because I believe it offers more resupply points along the way. But remember, that's just my opinion. It doesn't really matter much in the scheme of things. If we think back to our introduction on the book of Ruth, we identified the genre of the book as a short story, which means that the historicity of the book is vital to those of us who hear it and read it. Geography, as we've just seen, is just one link in the chain which helps us to connect to the historicity of the book. We're talking about real people in a real place at a real point in time on this blue planet. I don't know about you guys, but if we reread the text and then look at the map, it helps it come to life in all new ways. Can you guys read this out loud for me?
Now we can see it. We can literally picture where they were, what it may have looked like, which helps us understand how they may have felt in the face of everything that they were experiencing. As we look at verse 6 and 7, we also need to highlight that this passage may function as a transition point in the narrative. It's here that we learn that Naomi had decided to return to Judah. So while she's in the fields of Moab, she receives the news that the Lord had visited his people. More specifically, she learns that he had brought relief from the famine and restored Israel's crops. Finally, Bethlehem, the house of bread, is having its shelves restocked. There's no more famine in the land. It's come to an end. The magnitude of this shift in circumstances surfaces when we stop and attempt to think through, wow, it's the people of Kamosh who actually told Ruth that Yahweh had moved on behalf of his people. It's the people of Kamosh who told uh, Naomi that Yahweh has visited Israel with food. What would it take for us to acknowledge the work of another God? So with the discovery of the news, a decision has been made. Naomi sets out from Moab with the goal of returning home to Bethlehem and Judah. Can you guys read this next set of verses for me, please? These verses mark the first of three verbal exchanges which take place between verse 8 and verse 17. These verses also introduce to us the book's dominant literary feature. Does anybody want to take a guess at what the dominant literary feature may be? So you have the narrator who narrates the story. He is the storyteller. This reveals to us dialogue and conversation between the characters. The literary feature that it's highlighting is the dialogue. There is 85 verses in the book of Ruth. 56 of them include dialogue. That's a major majority. <laughs> now the first thing we're going to do is frame the context for the conversation that's unfolding because I don't know about you, but when I look at this, it doesn't just make sense to me. Now, it's true that we can't be sure where the dialogue takes place exactly. However, we do know that it begins after their departure from Moab and that after the conversation that they have unfolds, Ruth, I'm sorry, Orpah will later return to Moab while Naomi and Ruth continue on to Bethlehem. So while that doesn't give us an exact location, it does reveal that Naomi took her time to muster strength to even begin the difficult conversation that she had to have with her loved ones. Notice the intensity of the double directive. Go. Return. Naomi is literally urging her daughters-in-law to leave her and to return to their homes. It's as if we can hear her saying, Come on. I'm only asking you to follow my lead, to do what I'm doing. As I'm going home, please follow my lead and return to your family and your people and your land. If we close our eyes, we can see her holding back the tears as she pleads her case to the only two people left in her life. What has slipped right past us would have been so clear to the original audience. This is Naomi making her first attempt at a formal legal release. Around here, we refer to these types of things as what gets lost in translation? Because our culture doesn't function like their culture. We don't have clan loyalty. Our clan doesn't live within a tribe. 
And our tribe doesn't function based on geography. And she's left the land. And she's left her people. And now she has to go back. And she's bringing in tow with her two Moabites from a foreign land into her homeland. She's the one who fled. This is a difficult set of circumstances. So Naomi is making a first attempt at a formal release. Apparently, by sending her daughters back to their respective mother's houses, Naomi was releasing them to remarry. Campbell argues that the mother's house may have been the locus for matters pertaining to marriage. Remember, Isaac sees Rebekah, the first thing he does is takes her into her mother's, takes her into his mother's tent, and he beds her down. That's what he does. How do you consummate a marriage? And where does it take place? Are these things important? Doesn't say return to your father's house where your father will be responsible, but return to your mother's house so that your mother can arrange a marriage so that you can then be taken care of once again. No longer a burden to your clan and your tribe. If this is true, then Naomi's appeal to return is a subtle way of suggesting you can now go find new husbands. This theory dovetails nicely with her statement found in verse 8b and 9. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. Malon and Kilion were dead. So this must refer to future husbands. And Daniel Block notes that the firmness of the double directive, go return, is matched by the tenderness expressed in the double blessing which follows it. Naomi is asking. She's going to Yahweh. And she's asking that the measure of Ruth and Orpah's chesed, their steadfast love for her, would be matched by the measure of Yahweh's graciousness towards them. This blessing functions in the ancient Near Eastern context as a formula signaling an end to their relationship. Something both Ruth and Orpah would have immediately known and understood as Naomi was speaking to them. But it's what slips right past us. This means that Naomi is attempting to free both women of any and all responsibility to her. It's an act of grace. It's only now that we understand the cultural context that we can piece together why it would have taken Naomi so long to muster up the courage to end the relationship between her only living family. It's very intense. Imagine losing your husband and your sons and then having to release the two women that you've spent the last decade with. After a decade of life together, death is dominating. And in the midst of death, bonds are formed between the living. And to sever that, because one is overcome by feelings of what must have been desperation and powerlessness, most likely rooted in the reality that she, Naomi, lacked in herself the necessary resources required to provide rest for both Ruth and Orpah. Why? Because she was a woman living in a patriarchal culture in the ancient Near East. What could she do to provide rest for these women? I can entrust them to Yahweh. And I can bless them and I can send them home to their people. It's an act of grace. We're nine verses in, and alongside of the cast, we've had to endure the news of a nationwide famine, exile for at least one Hebrew family. Sometime after the arrival in the land of Moab, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. Ten years go by. We learn that Malon and Kilion die while their wives are left 
barren and without children. And now we read of three women with no protection making an attempt to travel some 50 or 60 miles across ruggedest, mountainous terrain which separates Moab from Bethlehem. I'm struggling to wrap my head around how strong Naomi is. If this was me, I'd be like, forget it! I'm done! It's hard to put ourselves in the character's perspective and think, how could this person entrust someone to the one they blame for taking everything away? I mean, she's a strong woman. And I haven't forgotten the news that she received that Yahweh had visited his people, but how much more can she endure, Lord? And now, as a person in the audience, I have to watch her release her last two living members in her family, and it's because, humanly speaking, she sees no better alternative. She doesn't know the future. It's suicide for an elderly woman to be all alone in the ancient Near East. She's literally walking off to what could be her death. If I had the book in my hands, I'd slam it shut and throw it across the room. I'm done with this story. It's too tragic. I don't want to keep reading. Because if this is just the beginning, I don't know if I have it in me for what's going to come next. This is when we ask ourselves, God, when is enough enough? Oh, has anybody ever felt like the characters in this story? Yeah, me too. God, when is enough going to be enough? This economic artistry of the author who restricts the details has left the audience craving just a little bit of light in all the darkness. It's no surprise that this bitter act of grace leaves all three women in a state of lament. They lifted up their voices and wept. When's the last time we've done that with those we love? Because I bet we all have a story that we lament in our lives. Are we willing to publicly engage in grief with those we love over the hurt we've experienced? You want to talk about a way to healing? Try through relationship. As the audience, we're attempting to rediscover our strengths so that we can return to the story and we find ourselves begging for anything other than more bad news because I can't take anymore. Can you guys read that? Finally. The light and the hope of some good news has broken out onto the horizon. In unison, both Ruth and Orpah have declared their allegiance to Naomi. She will not be left alone after all. Thank God that these two women were prepared to abandon all for the sake of Naomi. The experiences of life for these women had forged a bond stronger than their national and ethnic associations. They would not leave Naomi alone. This is a very difficult image for us to digest with our Western pragmatic view and we all intrinsically hold so tight to it. Sacrifice the good of my own for someone else? What? I can't help anybody if I can't help myself. Sadly, as soon as the light of hope breaks out onto the horizon, the clouds, the dark clouds of reality roll right back in. Naomi said, return my daughters. Why should you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than it is for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. God is against me. Robert L. Hubbard writes that the admirable affirmation of self-sacrifice both from Ruth and Orpah, had no more persuasive power over Naomi than hers had had on the two of them. She said, go, return. They said, no, we'll go. Round one comes to an end in verse 10. But the bell rings loud and clear in round two as verse 11 begins. And it's here in round two that, that Naomi says, all right, ladies, I'm about to up the ante on this. The first thing we're going to do is acknowledge that this exchange that's beginning to unfold in round two includes a reiteration of what Naomi said in round one, her double directive. Before she said, go and return. Now she switched and said, return and go. But it's just as intense. But that's just the tip of the iceberg in this speech. She launches into this list of sarcastic rhetorical questions. I don't know about you, but I can't stand it when I'm in a heated conversation and someone asks me a rhetorical question. Oh, you think I'm stupid? <laughs> you know that I know the answer to that question. You, you ask me that, I'm going to butt in and I'm going to answer your question. Anybody else hate that just as much as I do? Yeah. Yeah, just me. <laughs> We're all human, right? <laughs> I hate it. Callan constantly puts me in that position. <laughs> I constantly put her in that position too. Those who we love the most, we tend to hurt the most. Words like weapons, right? On the surface, we can read this portion of the text and understand Naomi's clearly not interested in a response. In modern terms, it may sound something like, you curls are foolish. Go home. Just get. In the South, they say, get gone. Go on, get. Right? Like, they take words and they put them together. It's like, why do they do that? Oh, because they actually mean it. Get out of here, boy. Get. Go home to your daddy. Right? Like, ooh, I'm going to be in trouble because he's going to call my dad. And by the time I get home, my dad's going to whoop me. <laughs> These are the statements of a bitter, sarcastic, old woman. Let's deal with question one. This question assumes three things, right? A, that Naomi was capable of bearing children in her elderly age. And it assumes, alongside of that, that she could bear children after being widowed for a decade. B, that in the midst of her current circumstances, like losing everyone she loves, she's interested in getting remarried. And C, that Naomi would bear a son possibly twins, because we have two girls in view here, and the potential for a daughter is just somehow off the table. <laughs> These are all things that remain outside of human control, leaving no room for a response at any point in the dialogue. We're forced to deal with both of the follow-on questions. Question two assumes that even if by some miracle Naomi does find a husband and is, is able to conceive and give birth to sons, plural, Realistically speaking, by the time these boys become men in a patriarchal culture, they will have zero interest in marrying two old hags like Ruth and Orpah. I mean, I'm just saying, it's true. Their hips are wide, but they can't birth. I ain't marrying them. We're talking about antiquity. All right? We're putting ourselves in their culture. We're trying to see things from their perspective. It's not America <laughs> where a young dude would chase the cougar because she's got security. 
Ain't happening here. <laughs> Finally, question number three assumes that the women should deprive themselves of marriage. Now, in the context in the ancient Near East, this goes far beyond the forfeiture of sexual pleasure, which most of us in here would not give up. It's just true. I mean, we're talking real life here. There's not a bunch of people in this room who are willingly going to raise their hand and say, I'm going to give up sex. You know? And in our world, you don't even need a person to engage in it anymore. It's very sad. And it's very degrading. This assumption runs the risk of removing the most coveted role of women in antiquity, and that's to bear children because bearing children was the essence of life for all women in antiquity. You want to just remove that from me, Naomi? <laughs> Naomi's final rhetorical question tips her hand, right? Why? Why pass up the opportunity to get married in Moab? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Go home. Find a new husband. Go to your mother's house. Embedded in the tone of her sarcastic line of questioning is the harsh statement, absolutely not, my daughters. You will not accompany me any further. Go to the next slide. No, my daughters. No what? Don't come with me because it's harder for me than it is for you. My husband and sons died. Only your husbands died. Wow. That's not a compare and contrast you want to pull with someone who just experienced someone dying. I fixed my microphone. I think it got super loud. No, just saying. Oh, okay. All right. Just from where I'm at. Okay. I know. I'm more intense than this story. <laughs> so at this point, when we're looking at this, it's our responsibility to recognize that Naomi's attempt to prevent the women from going with her was an attempt to prioritize their needs above her own. It's an act of grace. Not only was Naomi willing to travel alone, but she refused to take these women with her into an uncertain future. She believed that God was after her. <laughs> the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She literally believes that God is after her. To return home offered her no escape. What if the famine, exile, bereavement, and childlessness was just the beginning? If Naomi's correct, it may be best to create some safe space between her and her loved ones. Just saying, why should I get sucked into the proverbial vortex of destruction? The splash radius of this woman is death, not blessing. Get me outside of it. Her love for her daughters-in-law was too great to see them suffer any more loss, so she was releasing them. It's with these words that Naomi had gained the upper hand, effectually reducing the group from three down to two. Can you guys read this for me, please? Okay, so right now we're going to deviate. I'm justifying a rabbit trail. <laughs> to engage in a little apologetics. <laughs> I love this family. It's an unfortunate reality that we even have to do this, but there are those in mainstream scholarship like that we have to dialogue with who attempt to argue the approval of homosexuality within the text of Scripture from this specific text. They exist. We have to talk to them. We don't have to agree, but we have to talk to them. We can't push them aside or marginalize them. We have to engage them. That's what it means to love all people. 
Around here, we agree with scholars like J. Scott Duvall and J. Daniel Hayes, who teach us that readers, listen, AC squared, they're talking to us, readers of the Bible are not by nature neutral and objective. (laughs) This means that we bring a whole lot of preconceived notions and influences with us to the text when we read it. We all do it. It's unavoidable. Culture has a tremendous influence on how we interpret the Bible. Culture constantly seems to creep its way in. This is why when it comes to interpreting and applying the text of Scripture, context is crucial. In fact, we would go so far as to say that the most important principle in biblical interpretation is that context determines meaning. Say it with me. Context determines meaning. It's a good principle to operate under. So let's talk a little bit about context, right? First, Ruth is located in the First Testament. Well, I thought it was called the Old Testament. Well, it is, but it's the first of two. So it's also referred to as the First Testament. There is the First and the Second Testament. There is the Old and the New Testament. The backdrop of the whole of the text of the First Testament following the Sinai experience for the nation of Israel specifically is the Mosaic legislation. Second, one may want to take an anthropology course which focuses on the East, the Near East, and the Orient where they will come to understand that the kiss in view here has more to do with a storge kind of love as opposed to an eros kind of love. Storge is a familial love. Eros love is an erotic love. I love Callan very differently than I love my father. Just saying. We don't struggle to use Greek terminology when we're talking about a book in the Hebrew Bible, because Tommy just taught us about the canon. And Brent just taught us not to read our preconceived understandings into the text when he preached on Genesis. So what did we learn? Well, we learned that at Qumran, where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found four manuscripts of the book of Ruth. And in the Subtuagent, we have the Greek translation of the book of Ruth. So we're good with using Greek terminology when we're talking about a Hebrew book in the Bible because it's been translated and it makes contextual sense. As a matter of fact, by the time the Apostle Paul arrives on the scene along with Peter, (laughs) they both encourage the Gentile churches to greet one another with a holy kiss. So from the ancient Near Eastern culture all the way to the first century culture, we can now grasp that not only the immediate but the greater context of the text is just describing a cultural way to greet one another and to say farewell to one another, which is exactly what's going on in the story. They're saying their farewells. Ah, but it gets a little bit more difficult when we shift the focus and place the focus on this term clung. Well, why does it get more difficult? Because this word in the Hebrew, according to scholar Marin Ann Taylor, reminds us that even though this term can be ascribed to the love between a husband and a wife, see Genesis 2.24, that is an eros context, that even though we find this term in that context, it would be ridiculous to argue that it's the only definitive context of the term. In fact, she reminds us that this term is used to describe the bond God requires between his covenant people and himself. And when we read the Bible, we don't see God having sex with any human being. That's Greek mythology. She also goes on to remind us that the same verb appears in Ruth chapter 2, verse 8, Chapter 2, verse 21, and chapter 2, verse 23, in conjunction with remaining close or clinging to the other workers, protecting themselves by being in numbers while working in the fields. I don't know about you, but I don't think there's any acts of public lesbianism going on in the fields of Israel during the days of Boaz and Ruth on the lunch break. The guys aren't coming and standing around, the girls getting down, and masturbating the same way perverts watch pornography today. 
just ain't happening. Oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. Let's get real, people. This stuff is happening right now. Oh, that's disgusting. And then in private, you go pull down your pants, you flip your computer screen on, you pull it out, and you pleasure yourself. It would have been no different had the male workers in the field gathered around these workers and done the very same thing. But in that context, oh no. But in our context, oh yeah. Sorry, bub. And bub can be woman and man. <laughs> If it ain't right, it ain't right at all. So again, we'll remind ourselves that context determines meaning when we attempt to navigate these types of issues with those we may or may not tend to agree with. All we have to do is say, this is why we believe what we believe, and then leave it on the table. You can do whatever you want with your body. God actually created us with that freedom. Who am I to get in the way? But if you believe that God exists and he has a plan for your life, it may reflect this, not that. The choice is yours. It's not difficult to engage those we disagree with from a foundation of love. It's not. We just need to talk it out. It's the pleasure of living in a country like America where you can freely speak and not be ostracized or killed for it yet. <laughs> so looking back at the text, because that closes our rabbit trail, looking back at the text, verse 14 and 15 is previously, as we previously mentioned in our intro, Right? If we think back to the first sermon we did on the book of Ruth, we see that Orpah serves as a foil. We said it's not a piece of tin foil. She serves as a foil in the narrative. Foil is a term for contrast. Orpah provides us with contrast. Orpah did what was expected and sensible. The narrator never talks down about Orpah, so we shouldn't. She was actually obedient to Naomi. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land in which you live. Here's Orpah submitting to the Torah without even knowing it probably. Well, it's not her biological mother. It's her mother nonetheless. She continues to call them daughters. Yeah, my daughters. So Orpah sets the example for what's expected and sensible. And we're thankful for this. Had, had Orpah not made this decision to heed Naomi's advice and return home, we would have no backdrop to compare the decision which Ruth makes. And to say, oh, what Orpah did is good, but what Ruth did is better. Not what Orpah did is wrong and what Ruth did is right, but what Orpah did is good and what Ruth did is better. Who wants to do good and who wants to do better? Ask yourself the question. Ruth's decision to cling to her mother-in-law will set the standard for what is extraordinary and totally selfless. I want to be better. I want to be extraordinary and I want to be selfless. Ruth exemplifies the idea of chesed, which will later earn her the title of chayel, which is only mentioned two other times in the Old Testament. And it is a coveted title. It's also worth mentioning that verse 14 brings the close of round two. Another public act of corporate lament. Look, they lifted up their voices and wept again. Their hearts are broken and they're broken again. We said last week our hearts will break and our hearts will break again. In this short conversation, hearts were breaking and then breaking more. Verse 15 rings the bell on the third and final round of dialogue for today's study. 
Notice how terse, that's how concise, Naomi is in her final attempt to persuade Ruth to follow in the footsteps of her sister-in-law. In spite of Orpah's departure and Naomi's logical arguments, Ruth continued to cling to her. It's a surprising decision to all of us in the audience because ultimately there was no obvious advantage to following Naomi. I mean, Naomi's not wealthy. And in this tragic set of circumstances which is unfolding, it's clear that all of this is weighing heavily on her. I mean, think for a second. Can we understand how difficult the decision would be to commit oneself to an individual who's overcome by grief and sadness? Who wants to hang out with the depressed? Nobody's raising their hand. <laughs> Nobody must be a counselor. <laughs> we laugh, but it's true. Like, it would be difficult. I'm going to live my life with this individual who's overcome by grief and sadness. This person is bitter all the time. That would be demanding and stressful. Every day with Naomi? <laughs> no, thank you. Anybody ever felt like that? With someone they know in their own life? Dang. The light of hope, which had momentarily appeared on the horizon back in verse 10, was finally, finally beginning to break through the clouds of despair, which had seemed to loom over the lives of these two women. Can you guys read this for me? Look at the level of confidence in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. It's as if Ruth had looked across the proverbial poker table <laughs> right in Naomi's eyes and was like, I see you and I raise you. <laughs> yep. Just as Naomi's speeches had increased in their intensity, so Ruth's first statement intensified the response which she and Orpah had given back in verse 10. Look, this is what Ruth and Orpah say together. No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Ruth on her own displays much more courage and boldness. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Don't group me in there with the one who did good. I'm going to do better. Having already heard Naomi's release and command to return to the fields of Moab, Ruth was now faced with a very critical decision. Would she choose the familiar? Would she choose what was easy? Or would she choose the unfamiliar, casting her lot with her mother-in-law and endure the difficult? Close your eyes and imagine the tension and the silence between the close of Naomi's final attempt to persuade Ruth and Ruth's response. Wherever the future takes us, I will stay by your side. Ruth's decision would require her to renounce her ethnic and religious roots while simultaneously requiring her to adopt the nationality and religion of Naomi. We can be confident with Ruth that this was not an impulsive decision. Ruth had already proven her actions, that she was willing to follow Naomi. She had already traveled this far down the road, and she was willing to go further. It was Naomi who brought these things up. Ruth is proving in action her willingness, and now she has the opportunity to verbalize it apart from the sound of another voice. Ruth's statement was unequivocal and total. Now, some attempt to argue that this pledge represents a short-term commitment. I don't know how they see that, but some attempt to do that. They say things like, well, after all, Naomi is elderly, 
So when she dies, Ruth will be done fulfilling her obligations, and then she can resume life back in Moab. In fact, if Naomi dies quickly, then she can return young enough to remarry and bear children. So it's not really a long-term commitment that Ruth's talking about here. That's how some scholars interpret this. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's always people putting in their two cents on what the Spirit of God said is enough. When we hear people interpreting the text like that, we don't need to get all uppity. I need this advice. We just need to let the context determine the meaning and have a conversation with them. Verse 16 and 17 appears to be a steadfast, lifelong resolution. As modern readers, we're required to take into account each statement individually, each statement individually, and then corporately, and ask ourselves, is it temporal or is it enduring? This commitment was indeed total and permanent. Block states that Ruth hereby declared her release from every base of security that any person, not to mention a poor widow, would have clung to in that cultural environment. Her native homeland, her people, even her gods. Like any ancient Near Eastern of her time, she realized that if she were to go home with Naomi, she must commit herself to Naomi's people, Israel, and to Naomi's God, Yahweh, no more worshiping Kamosh. It's interesting how these words seem to have silenced Naomi. I mean, she's straight up silenced. What was it that accomplished this seemingly impossible task? I mean, this elderly woman was bitterly chatty. <laughs> and while Naomi's blessing back in verse 8 and 9 had functioned as a formal legal release, so Ruth's oath functions as a sign and seal that she would never abandon Naomi. This is how oaths work and blessings and cursings work in the ancient Near East. Take notice of how Ruth capped off her verbal oath with a self-imprecation. That's just the fact that she called down a curse on herself. May the Lord do to me and worse. If I don't fulfill this oath, may the Lord do X and Y to me. It's interesting that she doesn't describe what it is that God will do to her. Why? Because there's no need to tell the perfect judge how to delve out judgment. She was bold enough to make the oath. She can stand by it. And if she breaks it, then God will deal with her. Not Naomi. It's in this oath that she swore by the name of Yahweh. If you look at the original manuscripts, she doesn't use the word Elohim, which can be used for God or God, singular or plural. She actually uses God's proper name, Yahweh. It's as if she was attempting to identify herself with Naomi's God. Ruth's sworn oath, which was taken in view of the public, on the king's highway, most likely, has now been altered into a performative declaration. Her actions must match her words. Period. Ruth's self-imposed curse not only offsets the blessing from Naomi, but it trumps the blessing and release from Naomi. Again, it's the cultural context which illuminates the reasons behind Naomi's silence. Ruth has decisively cast her lot with Naomi, and Naomi understands that she, as a human being, lacks the necessary authority to nullify Ruth's oath sworn before the Creator. Naomi cannot nullify Ruth's oath. Only God can release her. So she quiets herself and continues down the road. Ruth's words encompass both the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of life. 
Geography, it covers all future locations. Chronology, it extends from the present to eternity. Theology, it exclusively embraces Yahweh. Genealogy, it merges a Moabite and a Hebrew or Israelite family together. Horizontal and vertical, it covers it all. We have in view two women who take the initiative, both holding the other's welfare above their own, both desiring the best for the other at great risk to themselves. What instructive principles might me, what might I, or we extrapolate from an ancient text like this? What can we learn? for points of application in our own life or is church just a sort of check the box actionable item I can't answer that question for anyone but me and trust me if anyone in this room has the potential to do church as a check the box item it's this guy so I'm no better Consider the implications, considering our own current circumstances. This is where it's about to get real. And I need you to hear me. These are not personal attacks. I'm calling us as a family into the light of Christ so that He can reveal our blind spots. So that by His Spirit we can be convicted of our sin and we can repent and turn back to Him. Because we all need to do it. Just like Callan said earlier. And we have a blueprint in the text of Scripture in Psalm 51. For those of us who prize nationalism and patriotism, I wonder what we're willing to forsake for the sake of the Gospel. I will use my guns to defend this country if the army falls. Nobody will tell me what to do as an American. My worship is to the flag because this is God's country. Are we serious? For the sake of the gospel? The gospel was nowhere in there. What about those who ground our identity in ethnicity? Could we leave it all behind for the sake of another? A foreigner? Do I cherish my German roots? Or do I cherish my Hispanic roots? Do I love people because of their color? Or do I love people because they're valuable? Because they have intrinsic value? Because they're created in the image and likeness of God? Or do I value my ethnocentricity over relationship? What is it, America? You tell me! Because I'm asking the same questions. I struggle more, if not as much, than everyone in the room. Because I'm the guy who has to ask the hard questions. What about legacy? Oh! Some of us place a high value on leaving a legacy. What's our heart posture going to look like when we're asked to sacrifice our worldly goods for the sole purpose of watching another people group thrive? Close the borders! All these dirty refugees are messing with my future! My taxes are going up! My wages aren't enough! Shh! If you'd have got off your butt and gone therefore and made disciples, Lord, I'll pay for it. Not my kids, their kids. What's it going to be, church? Come 
seem to work itself out when it actually comes to loving people. Don't talk about it. Be about it. The list goes on and on and on. My identity, my body, my sexuality, my financial security, my status, my friends group, my significant other, my husband, my wife, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my life partner. That's what my identity's in. That's what I'll die for. That's what I'll protect. Where's God in all of it? What keeps me grounded? How far am I willing to go and what will I sacrifice for the sake of it? Nobody can answer these questions for you. This world and all it has to offer is fleeting. It's finite. It's temporal. And it's literally impossible to keep up with each and every fad that hits the scene. We can't do which forces us to ask, what am I willing to die for? Whatever it may be, and why am I willing to die for it? Our whole world could change in a moment. We've learned that from reading the story this far. Are we ready for it? No, we're not. Because we're human and we don't know what the future holds, which means we can't predict how we're going to react. We have a heart and a mind. We don't know what awaits us in this life, which is why we need to spend time thinking through the hard things and talking about the hard things. It matters. The Christian must not live by the epitaph, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. On this side of the cross, we must come to the understanding that the Master is not interested in the individual who will look back. He's not. Put your hand to the plow or don't. But don't look back, whatever you do. when we consider what it means to yoke ourselves to Christ, maybe we should consider the life of Ruth, who for the sake of another, severed all ties with the world that she knew for Naomi. What is it that drives our thoughts and our deeds in connection to Jesus? To be like Christ, to be like Christ, to be like Christ, what does it even mean? Are we willing to live a life of other-centered theology? knowing that it will cost us everything. If you're sitting in your seat saying, I don't know how much more I can take, shut up, Matt! Think about how Naomi felt! Think about how Ruth felt! We know nothing! We literally know nothing! We have it so good in this world, and we complain day after day! Our poor live better than two-thirds of the world. Let's get real for five minutes. Oh, man, I can't take it. Ruth couldn't take it either. And she said it was his fault. To embrace and exemplify has said to Yahweh first and to the whole of humanity second. I pray that we haven't forgotten what we learned in our last series. Come on, guys. Let us do good to everyone. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to the household of faith. Who is my neighbor? How about we stop asking such a stupid question and we start living for others? Because that's what Jesus did for us. When we forget, because we will forget, let's attempt to remember the life of Ruth and trust that come whatever may, God is with us because his name is Emmanuel. Like Ruth, we must remain loyal. Will we do what is expected and sensible? 
Or will we do what is extraordinary and totally selfless? You decide. Father, thank you for this opportunity to love one another in the most difficult way that you've called us to love one another. I pray, Lord, that people in this room, myself included, would not feel personally attacked, but they would, spill, they would feel spiritually conflicted and convicted to be transformed by the one who is changing us and continues to change us. Thank you for the life of Ruth who shows us how to be loyal. Thank you for the life of Naomi who displays and exemplifies other-centered theology. Thank you for the text of Scripture so that we can identify with the history of humanity and say, I'm not alone. And most importantly, the one who created me loves me so much that he has redeemed me. Father, thank you. We say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it. We're done.